that you had a number of meetings with Jeffrey Epstein. Is there a lesson for you, for anyone else looking looking at this? Well, he's dead. So, uh, you know, in general, you always have to be careful. Uh, I wanted to get the fuck out of Sarasota, like right away, like growing up here. Um, <laughs> well, that's what I did. I went to yeah, the other I, end of I, the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of curious what you did. You know, um, let me uh, let's just like we'll start the introduction, and I can edit it as as necessary. Um, be more formal. I've, I'm very bad about you know. Welcome to the show, kind of thing. Still oh, learning. it's all right. I feel Still weird doing that format. stuff too. Don't worry about it. Like, I'm not destined to be a podcaster at all. I'm like a writer person, <laughs> but no one. Podcasting reads is so anymore. easy, though. Oh my god, <laughs> writing yeah. writing is like extractive and painful, and it can it... be. Well, it takes a lot longer and a lot more out of you, you know. Yeah, but you know, it's certainly I, a lot more satisfying. I'm to, like, not hold the best something. speaker. Like people complain about like my voice and how I talk. I say like <laughs> too much because obviously when you write all that stuff isn't um there, there's no ums and likes and whatever. Right. Right. Uh... <laughs> well, there's but... also something about like physically holding a book too, like that you've something that yeah. you've made. Cause like the, the podcasts, they, they feel so sort of, uh, uh, you know, ephemeral, like they're just going to like, that was the exact word yeah. I was going to use. Yeah. Good yeah. Call. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'll just start it and then we can just kind of chat. Um, yeah, uh, sure. Welcome Whitney Webb to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, we're here to talk about your book, uh, One Nation Under Blackmail. Uh, the sordid union between intelligence and organized crime that gave rise to Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, I got to say, reading the book, it reminded me of uh, that part of the Bible, Genesis 5, where they're doing all the begats. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image. Yeah, other people have uh, made the comparison as well. And that's because, well, the book, right, One Nation Under Blackmail was split into two volumes by the publisher, but it was always in, in going to be written in two parts, like a part one and part two. And that's why it was so easy, I guess, to decide where to split it when that decision was ultimately made. Uh, but basically what I'm trying, what I originally wanted to do in the book was uh, get to the bottom of the Jeffrey Epstein mystery. And what do I mean by mystery? I mean, you know, the allegations by people like Vicki Ward and Alex Acosta when he was Secretary of Labor, that he was told that Epstein belonged to intelligence and to back off. And what exactly does that mean? What were those intelligence connections and, and so on and so forth? And also in an attempt to explore a lot of the aspects of the Epstein case that have been either glossed over or ignored entirely by uh, the vast majority of media outlets. So in examining that, you know, uh, I basically, you know, volume two is what came of that. But in order to understand and really put Epstein into context, you have to understand the network uh, that enabled him before he ever came on the scene. And that also necessitates that you understand some uh, institutions and networks and past political scandals that play a role in Jeffrey Epstein's formation, particularly in the 1980s. So, 
in trying to um, detail all of that, it sort of produced what is volume one, which is really more like a reference book for yeah, exactly. um, the collusion between organized crime and intelligence in the most for most of the 20th century um, in U.S. politics and, and the impacts that have had. And what I'm trying to show, the reason it sort of has that begat format um, is because you it's important to show the continuity because a lot of people have been sort of given... Um, I guess the Hollywood version of organized crime, you know, uh, the mob had this, you know, their glory days and in, in these decades, and then they were no more. Mm -hmm. And that's not quite the case when you look at, um, you know, really what happened is instead of them disappearing, uh, they more went underground, but underground in the sense that they teamed up with another covert world, the world of intelligence, and developed sort of this symbiosis. And the evidence is there, but in order to make the case uh you have to go you know detail by detail and there's right. a lot of legwork that may be cumbersome to some people but it's ultimately necessary in proving uh the thesis because you have to prove it so extensively that people can't argue that it's just coincidence right if i were to just to boil it down to just a few such examples you could make that argument but when it's uh, so many instances of crime over decades and decades and decades committed by the same people and their business partners and what have you, it becomes a lot um, more compelling of a case, right. I guess. Yeah. And, and so, you know, reading it, because it doesn't have that kind of, um, I think, digestible narrative, just because there are so many characters involved. I, I was wondering, like, who is this book for exactly? Because it, it works for someone like me, who's like you. I'm, I'm literally going to use this book as a reference to other characters I'm writing. I'm already looking up, like, I'm doing this one story about uh, William Cobb, who was a, a, a drug smuggler in the in the 70s, and now his son has a medical marijuana empire. And I immediately like looked it up, I'm like, is that in the book? Is he connected somehow? So for me it's going to be a great reference uh, to use to, to see to what degree these kinds of characters in the, in this, in the United States and Florida in particular are, are attached to Jeffrey Epstein. What do you hope like the general population can get from a book like this? So in terms of like a, a, a more a digestible narrative, I think that really comes more in volume two because the focus is on the Epstein scandal and all of that and, and getting deep into what that was really about in the, in the players in uh, that we know about in that scandal, like Jeffrey Epstein, Leslie Wexner, Ghislaine Maxwell, and, and how that uh, connects to a lot of important um, aspects of the present. And, but volume one, like I said earlier, is sort of like a reference book. But the idea was that if I was going to be mentioning groups like uh, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, also known as BCCI, or Iran-Contra, or things like that in the context of Epstein, um, you know, I'm trying to make a compelling case for his intelligence ties. So I have mm -hmm. to show what the nature of those ties are. So I have to explain what all of those those groups were uh, and are and what those scandals were really about, because I think most Americans have a very superficial understanding of a lot of those events or may not have even be familiar with those names at all. So um, instead of, you know, sort of glossing over it, I felt like, you know, for people that wanted to know more, they could go back and um, right. 
have that so, resource in, in volume one. But at the same time, if you read volume one and then read volume two, you understand a lot more that there's no way that Jeffrey Epstein was an anomaly. He was the product of this particular right. system and that there are history is just littered with characters that are like, just like him basically. Uh, and you know, how scandalous is that? Right. And even beyond that, uh, volume one, what it really shows is that basically, uh, organized crime is, uh, running the government. um in a in a very um in a way that's really difficult to ignore and i mean the timeline of volume one you know pretty much takes you to the early 1990s more or less Mm -hmm. um but obviously a lot of the same characters that came out of that particular era in their political careers you know are basically uh the people that run the country you know the clinton era george w bush and then going into obama you know and a lot of the people that brought obama to power like the pritzkers are talked about in volume one and chapter one actually Mm -hmm. um and you know they have a lot of uh, political pull in their in the Democratic Party and also in their home state of Illinois. Um, like a Pritzker is the governor of Illinois right now. So you know these are prominent characters that are still very much um, running the show, at least visibly in a lot of ways. And it's important to understand their history to understand um, you know what we're facing um, you know as as a country right now and a lot of the the challenges with corruption and a disenchantment of voters and you know all sorts of stuff. You know it's really important to understand the real history uh but it may not be for everyone right because like you mentioned it's not a digestible narrative and those type of dense reads and reference books you know may not be attractive to some people so for people like that you know my hope would be you know maybe start with volume two and if any of these connections pique your interest you know go back and read the relevant chapters yeah if you want to be more academic uh book one volume one um so yeah i guess book two is dessert is what you're saying should we eat dessert first then you know? Well, it, it, I mean, it's really up to, you know, what people are looking right. for. You know, not everyone is the same type of reader interested in the same types of books. Um, and so if you're, you know, looking for an encyclopedia of organized crime, <laughs> basically, <laughs> and how it's impacted the modern era, you know, you'll right. definitely be interested in volume one. But if you're only interested in what was actually sort of going on with the whole Epstein thing, um, and what have we not been told about it, then you mm-hmm. may not be interested in volume one, you might only be interested in, in volume two, you know, at least to start off with. But I think they really I think it's pretty obvious to people that have read both that they do um, very much go together because Epstein is really an extension of the story that's told in volume one yeah i mean when uh, i was but reading the, the uh, level of detail might be complicated for some people right. in volume one and i have had you know some criticisms about that but a lot of other people you know like on amazon a lot of the reviews are you know overwhelmingly positive but there are people that that haven't liked that but again i didn't want to have to go back and like do it over you know i wanted to be as, as oh yeah thorough, yeah yeah no I, I um as possible and it, you know it's a complicated case when you're trying to talk about epstein and intelligence ties because it's not as so clear cut you know it was this intelligence agency or that intelligence agency really it was an intelligence network that's tied up with multiple intelligence agencies organized crime connections corporate power and all sorts of stuff that sort of has developed this this symbi- symbiosis at some point and you know uh, jeffrey epstein stepped into that world and they helped enable and uh, enable him and protect him over you know a series of decades so i want to uh take a step back or maybe zoom in actually on uh florida and how florida has become or it exists as this kind of nexus for these major world events for organized crime i mean epstein uh the story of epstein is very present in the state of florida as well and 
I, I also want to talk about you growing up in Florida and how that may have influenced the way you look at the world. Because I know for me, uh, it has. And we both grew up in Sarasota, which I didn't know until I was actually doing a story about um, Steve Bannon and Andy Bottolato. And I got in touch with uh, Daniel Hopsicker. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, tell me, like, growing up in Florida, what was that like for you? Um, So I felt like I was born in the wrong place. <laughs> um, Because, I don't know, I, I get sunburnt really easily. I'm allergic to mosquitoes <laughs> and all of that. So, uh -huh. like, yeah. um, you know, Sarasota upbringing was kind of... um was kind of challenging. Um, and, you know, stuff with my family was really complicated. I developed a lot of trust issues with adults in general. And, and I guess in Sarasota, cause that's where I happened to be. Uh, so I didn't really, um, you know, trust what I was told. I, I was very, um, you know, intent on figuring things out for myself. And I think there are just some teenagers that perhaps may be wired that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um so you know i definitely uh i think that definitely influenced my work uh to be sure um but i ended up going to university in in north carolina i didn't stay in state for that though you know it was tempting um mm -hmm. but i got a, i got um you know a, a free ride pretty much to go to a school up there so i went um and um uh, i don't know i still kind of have mixed feelings about florida uh, on my mother's side i'm like a seventh generation floridian no way uh, you know, so that's pre yeah that's that's pre rare that's incredibly rare yeah well they're from yeah. uh my they're that side of the family's from plant city and you know the first school teacher and all of that in plant city is from my <laughs> maternal oh, you gotta side. get in touch with your heritage come on that's that's so cool yeah I, no it, i mean it is cool but i mean also i think florida is really different from how it used to be especially true. during that time you know and most of the people i went to school with in florida weren't from florida um or weren't born here or their parents weren't born here and stuff and i think that's you know pretty common so you sort of you sort of get like a a whole mix of you know a sort of a microcosm of of the country at large you know yeah. it's not it it's doesn't like look southern, good but not case, southern right? yeah. and all you know especially in the coast coastal florida you know you have a lot of people from up north and the west uh, we coast are, we even have been and completely all of the invaded by midwesterners i have a, a real prejudice against Midwesterners now. Like I, I, I've been chanting build that wall to build the wall on the Northern border of Florida. Like no more people, please. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I've never heard, I've never heard the argument for that, but I guess I can, I can understand. I mean, when I was growing up, people complained about the snowbirds and stuff in winter time, but I guess they're talking about a, <laughs> the Mid Midwesterners have, have like a whole a lot different, yeah, yeah. Midwesterners, like Ohio river Valley kind of stuff. They've all come down here and they have a very different idea of how things work. And this is the case where it, it, when anybody moves to a different place, they bring their memories, they bring their their lifestyle with them. Sure. And Midwesterners have a, per, a peculiar sort of idea of private property. And so what we're seeing right now are these Midwesterners, mostly people with like multi-level marketing fortunes, buying beachfront property and just completely kicking people off the beach wrongfully so and the local governments seem to just let them get away with it they let them use the police as oh. like their own private force um and it's it's getting wild i've been like covering that for a little while and so my um my absolute disdain for midwesterners has just uh exploded <laughs> oh man 
Well, I wasn't aware about any of that, but I know, you know, I was back in Sarasota for the first time, probably in like eight years or so. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and my parents were complaining a lot about the uh, recent influx in people. And they live in an area that at least when I lived in, um, you know, Florida, when I was in high school and before, you know, it was completely undeveloped out there. And now it's just uh, subdivision after subdivision. Oh, it's, after it subdivision. breaks my heart. It breaks my and, heart. And they've really developed the crud out of it. And it seems like they're going to be developing an awful lot more um, yeah. out there, like the Turner Ranch area, if you're familiar. Oh, yeah. And I, I <laughs> yeah, do so. I, I do wonder if uh, Hurricane Ian is going to slow that down at all, like uh, especially with the looming uh, insurance crisis that's 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 going to hit Florida and in a pretty significant way. Um, but uh you know, we're roughly the same age, uh, although one of us is a lot more accomplished than the other. I won't say who. Um, oh. And uh, <laughs> and uh, but we, we Sarasota, I think what, what kind of drew me back to Sarasota was. Uh, it, it It's weird. It's really, really weird here. A lot of strange significant events of history have direct ties yeah, to Sarasota. It's definitely I, interesting. And a lot of it I didn't know till I was older and wasn't living there anymore. But things I remember from when I was a kid, right? I think I went on a tour of the Catazon, right? Mm -hmm. John Ringling's house when I was a kid. And they were like, here's his secret prohibition vault. And, you know, who ran the liquor and prohibition? Oh, well, that would be organized crime. So, you know. Behind every great fortune, there. right, is yeah, uh, organized yeah. crime. It's the circus fortune and all this stuff. But he, you know, has dealings with who, apparently. I mean, you know, I sort of didn't really think about it too much, you know, when I was a kid. And, you know, you go to the Catazon, you're looking at all the fancy stuff and how fancy it was and and whatever, not really thinking about the man who built it so much. Well, maybe some people do. Mm -hmm. um, but there were some things that I thought were really odd about it. Like, I think he has a, a picture of Napoleon's sister, like naked in his bedroom and stuff. And <laughs> I just thought that was really weird. Like, why you know, would some, you sleep some with your things wife never in front change, of that? And, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, we're not any different from uh, 100 years ago or so. Um, the other thing too was, uh, you know, I I was at Booker um, when Bush came on nine eleven, and so right, that was right. like a really seminal moment in my life. Being like that close to, I think, one of the most significant events in history, um, really stuck with me, and it didn't start to, um, I didn't start to examine it till much later in life. Yeah, well, I think that's um, true for a lot of people. So I think I was like eleven. Uh, when 9-11 happened, I didn't go to Booker. I went to Pineview. Um, mm -hmm. And so I sort of, you know, remember how it was there, but it, I don't think it was, um, I think it was definitely much more dramatic to have been in, in that classroom at Booker Elementary when, you know, all of that, all of that stuff went down. But yeah, it was definitely bizarre. And like, why here? You know, it's just. Yeah. And I, I've been, interesting. Uh, for the past couple of years, I've been trying to explore that. And that's how I actually found out about you and your connection to Sarasota. Cause I had been reading your work at mint press and then unlimited hangout. And then uh, I was doing a story about um, Steve Bannon and Andy Bottolato out on Casey key. And that's when I uh, found the work of Daniel Hopsicker. And uh that's how I, I like I, I learned about you. I know you had a little bit of like a like a, a tiff with Daniel for a minute where he accused you. Well, he had a tiff with me. I didn't really have any problems with him. Uh, right. Yeah, but it, I, as far as I know, it sort of resolved itself. Um, it did. Um, and, and you know, because uh, I, I, I remember I, I saw the whole like Twitter affair, and that's the thing where like in today's 
culture, especially like Twitter and podcasting, like everyone's accusing someone else of being an asset of some government or other. Yeah, it can be really exhausting. You know, some people prove themselves to be that. But I mean, you know, if you're constantly accusing people of being controlled off all the time, that has to be exhausting for you and exhausting for everyone else, you know, to constantly be be looking for the the holes to pick in on, on uh, you know, things to pick apart on the person rather than the information they're putting out. Like, um, I don't know. I think there's a reason why I'm like, I try and be pretty private. Like I don't really mm-hmm. uh, involve myself really in a lot of Twitter spats or ego battles or even talking about my personal life or my family or my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, just because people get really focused on you as the person and not on the information you're writing about. And I think it should really be as much about the information as mm-hmm. possible. You know, and, and, and as I recall, you know, Hopsicker uh, wasn't very happy with um, some of my uh, reporting on, on Adnan Khashoggi, for example, and, you know, al- allegations that he was on the payroll of, you know, multiple intelligence agencies, which is really a matter of record. But he had a bone to pick with, uh, you know, the Israeli intelligence connection there. But I mean, with Irene Contra and all of that stuff, I mean, it is kind of uh, clear that he was on the payroll of of them and other groups as well. You know, I wasn't trying to make it all about one particular group but i think some people took it that way mm-hmm. um but i think you know i think it sort of smoothed itself out and i think you know well i don't know if he's read the book but um i hope he does and i hope he uh likes it and and is able well, to you, see that you I, reference I, him in the tried... book too you reference his work with well Barry yeah Seal, i mean he's so. done he's done good stuff on on barry seal and you know all sorts of other you know issues particularly with the florida focus so you know mm-hmm. i'm happy to cite him uh, tiff or no tiff you know i mean <laughs> yeah. if the information is good it doesn't again it doesn't matter about the ego stuff like i don't really operate there so you know if someone decides they don't like me but the work is really good and i want to cite it yeah i'll cite it because you know right. people deserve the the best information possible that's what i try and and do in my work so mm-hmm. you know i'm, I'm no, and, really... and I, I i really appreciate uh the work that daniel did i mean being putting himself on the ground in places where no one else was and what just drives me crazy about his books is like they're very hard to cite uh in like a journalist context because like it's like hard to find the actual references to the things he's saying like to double check you know um and so i'm hoping to write a piece about him in the near future we had him on the podcast and it was uh, a blast um but to bring it back to Florida and, and how, you know, Daniel came here, found this stuff, you're from here, like there's the coincidences, you know, Sarasota has been called uh, the conspiracy capital of the world by I think oh, Vice, Vice News now. Yeah, because we have a lot of weird characters coming in here now. Besides like the 9-11 connection, Sarasota uh, has become, I think Sarasota is actually largely responsible for turning the state red because of uh, Joe Gruders who was the first, I think, serious politician to court um, Donald Trump. He endorsed him. He made him the, like, the, the like, I forget, the, like, person of the year for the Republican Party or whatever. Um, and uh, since Gruters uh, and Trump, uh, we've had this influx of, like, more and more right-wing folk. Like, Michael Flynn lives here now probably not too far from where you grew up uh, out by uh, the the Carlton Reserve. Um, Rumble is is surreal. Rumble's uh, headquartered here now. So is Truth Social. Uh, There's like, it's getting weird, like why they're coming here. Yeah, I had no idea about any of this. You know, when I was growing up, I was like, okay, Sarasota's, you know, the famous people that are from here are like Pee Wee Herbin. (laughs) 
who's a close family friend by the way yeah uh, oh really and yeah, and, and yeah. john ringling and those are like the famous people <laughs> and yeah. now i didn't know any of this other stuff had sort of come home to roost here yeah we're blowing um up. yeah small world i guess that's pretty <laughs> yeah so, no comment <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. uh and so what, what i find so strange is all this is happening but also you know florida in general not just sarasota but florida is like the nexus of all this weirdness and considering yeah. epstein's uh like deep Florida connections and how that's where he got, that's where like all this started to unravel for him. Um, what mm-hmm. is it about Florida? You think as like a seventh generation Florida woman or former Florida woman, I'll say uh, what is it about Florida that attracts all this like craziness? So I think, you know, if you look back at the history, you know, organized crime kingpins for a long time, you know, they weren't necessarily based in Florida, but they definitely made, uh, made it a point to have bases in Florida. You know, people like, uh, you know, the head of the Jewish mob, right? Mayor Lansky, for example, had a mm-hmm. lot of interest in Florida, real estate in Florida banking. And some of the people I talk about in the book in the organized crime uh, context, um, we're involved with all sorts of stuff, um, but mainly banking and real estate in Florida. And if you look at people like Lansky, going back to him as an example, but I mean, he's obviously not the only one. And I think that's pretty clear, even in, in my book and in other books on this topic. Um, they had a lot of interest in pre-revolution Cuba uh, and mm-hmm. also other places in the Caribbean, the Bahamas, Bermuda, what have you. And so having that base in Florida, you know, allows for proximity to those locations as well. And for someone like Lansky and later, you know, other people that work in shadow banking uh, to a large extent, including, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, it's very useful uh, to have those uh, have that proximity because in the Caribbean in particular, not necessarily Cuba now, but, you know, um, the Bahamas, uh, the Cayman Islands, even the Virgin Islands in the case of Epstein, um, you have a lot of these uh, finance, you know, sort of shady financial vehicles existing there. These offshore banking systems uh, having functioned there really for decades and decades and decades that are used to launder launder money and do all, you know, facilitate all sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, I think that's part of the connection. But even going up in time, um, I think it's pretty obvious too. You know, a, an airline like Southern Air Transport, with all of its controversy, uh, was based in Miami. Mm-hmm for a very long time and part of that was for the proximity uh to latin america and places that were producing uh large amounts of uh contraband <laughs> right <laughs> uh so i think that you know may have something to do with it as well because you know if you ask anyone who lived in miami in the 1980s i mean it's pretty clear that that particular area was flooded um with illegal substances you know southern air transport with all of its controversies was based in miami and um you know it especially during a period uh, like in the 1980s when if you ask anyone who lived in 1980s miami i mean it was just flooded with illegal substances so you have a cia linked airline that's been linked to narco trafficking based in miami and it's going to you know places in latin america that produce those substances and then you know they have a base in florida and I, I think, you know, I mean, I don't really have to spell it all out for people, but, you know, there is evidence <laughs> there, um, you know, for its uh, for Florida's role in, in those particular uh, types of operations as well, historically. So uh, you have a whole, um, you know, mix of things. And when it comes to, um, you know, events like 9-11 or even the anthrax attacks, um, I have a friend named 
uh, Robbie Martin, who has a podcast called Media Roots, um, and he did like a visual map of all the different characters yeah. and addresses and instances of um, 9-11 and also anthrax. And just, uh, I mean, it's the same hotspots in Florida for both of those um, operations. And so people have made, you know, well, he and other people uh, look in, based on that map and not based on that map have made a compelling, I think, a compelling case that they're they were very much interrelated from the off. Um. But, you know, going into the details of that is probably best. That map is wild. Uh, the way I mean, the, he did his due diligence and showed just how you would have uh, like is Israeli agents living like a block away from uh, a known terrorists. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Well, when you consider um, some of the evidence about like surveillance activities being conducted by Israeli intelligence around that period of time, and some of that is known about like New York, for example, in this particular period, but it's also um, pretty insane to look at it in, in the Florida uh, level as well. It's, uh, yeah, anyway, there's, there's a lot to say about Florida's role of uh, in, in all of this, but it seems to be a location that's sort of favored for these types of activities. And, at and least I, I wonder if that's just like geographic convenience. Or sometimes well, I wonder I think, if it's... I think it's a mix of both. You know, if people like, you know, Lansky and those guys were very much installed here and had influence over Florida politics and all of that, you know, going way back. And you can assume that similar people like that continue to exert influence in similar ways, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the present, um, you know, you know, that sort of speaks for itself. But at the same time, you know, Florida has a lot of coastline um, and, you know, other geographic attributes that perhaps facilitate uh, facilitate these types of activities as well. So I, I wonder, too, uh, if it's something more immaterial. I mean, I, I don't have any proof of this, obviously, but if Florida's cursed somehow, um, <laughs> one one fact about Sarasota that I like that makes me feel like Sarasota is uh, legitimately cursed um, is we used to have, you know, shell middens like three-story high shell middens from the native peoples all along the west coast of Florida. And most of them were, you know, they were kind of like their their burial dumps. mounds. Yeah, burial yeah. mounds. But so there there was like some significance to it. Some of them were just literal trash heaps, but they didn't like have like trash as we know it today. But some yeah, of isn't them were, there still were one between like um uh, where is it? It's like on the way Sarasota. You're going down to Osprey and to Spanish Venice. Point, like in I think, still that's has it. Spanish, Spanish Point, Point has still has one, one. Mm -hmm. and there are still a few up and down um, the coast. But there used to be thousands, um, and they used to be some of the highest points in the area. And what we did when we came down here was the Army Corps of Engineers took all those shell mittens, ground them up, turned them into asphalt, and made US forty one with them. So every day you drive in Sarasota on US. Oh my god, I had no idea. Oh you're driving on god. Indian burial ground. <laughs> you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I wonder in Florida and Sarasota, but in Florida in general, if there isn't some sort of uh, a dark forces at play besides just you know the the geography of it, and obviously like. You know, Florida for a long time, too, was uh, the place where um, the Seminoles came, right? The the Creek Indians who were pushed down further south escaped slaves. It was this open landmass where you yeah. could just kind of disappear and, and get away with a lot of stuff. So I wonder if that's yeah. part of it, too. Um, Maybe. I think Florida, you know, before air conditioning was everywhere and uh, this, this, a lot of like pine plantations were planted to drain swamps and develop and all that stuff. Yeah, it was a very different place. Um, 
Less yeah, so now. Uh, yeah, less so but now. But definitely has changed, uh, you know, since then in, in a lot of ways. But, it, 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 you know, and taking it back to organized crime, you know, those those particular figures that made a home in Florida, a lot of them did so before that period of, of mass development in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think there might be some sort of entrenched involvement. And if you look at, you know, the oligarch of Sarasota of yesteryear, John Ringling, you know, as mentioned earlier, he had some sort of mob association, at least in the twenties. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how long is it, you know, what sort of influence has that had in, in Florida at large? I mean, that's going to be my next story. I think I'll, I'll look into the mob connections of uh, John Ringling. <laughs> uh, he he did some weird stuff too. Like I learned recently that he actually bought a handful of walruses and released them into the bay. And obviously they Wouldn't died. Wouldn't it be a little hot for them? Yeah. yeah. It wasn't very smart, but he had a lot of weird animals. Um, so uh, bringing it back to uh, zooming back out to, to Epstein, um, I, I do want to get, I want to ask you what you think people get wrong about Epstein. I mean, what, what, and if the the conversation, if you're worried that the conversation's over now that like Ghislaine's locked up, Epstein's dead, you know, more and more like characters associated with the Epstein web, um, like, uh, Brunel, right. They're, they're dead now too. Mm-hmm. Um, are you afraid that the conversation's just going to end? Like, that he'll just kind of live on as this as a meme almost right he like jeffrey epstein it, became yeah, a it's meme. sort of been memeified yeah in a, in a sense it has and now you're having you know high profile people that spoke out against him sort of changing their stories now after all of this has has taken place yeah so epstein definitely has been memeified uh, in a sense you know the epstein epstein didn't kill himself and all of this mm-hmm. um and i think um, some of the people that were really prominent in the case, like people who spoke out against him, have now very recently started to sort of backtrack um, on some things. So there's a lot of open questions here, I guess, as to you know what the legacy will be and where they're trying to drive it. But I think from the off, it was pretty clear that there was an effort to manage this uh, to the greatest extent possible. And I think it's pretty clear if you look at uh, the main media narrative about Epstein, you're looking at someone, um, you know, you're they only really discuss a few things. They talk about sex crimes, mostly focused on the Florida sex crimes mm-hmm. in Palm Beach. Um, and, you know, this time ranges from 2000 to 2006. And this is someone who uh, became active in these murky circles of intelligence, organized crime at some point, it, it seems in the 70s, um, definitely by the 1980s, but it seems like it began a little bit earlier uh, than that. So you I mean, you have decades of history of, of this guy's career that no one in, in media has really bothered to look into. And that includes a frequent meetings at the white house during a particular period um and a lot of other very bizarre um acts i guess you could say that are part of you know the sex trafficking story as well i mean if you look at the time frame um over which uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was prosecuted, those were events that took place in the 1990s, whereas uh, most of what Epstein was facing, at least in the mainstream media and in a lot of the court cases, was, again, between 2000 and 2006, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is definitely, you know, in the 90s, um, you know, he was, uh, he went to the White House 17 times in less than two years and had a lot of associations with very powerful people even back then, um, including, you know, the top people at Microsoft, as well as um the treasury secretary or then deputy treasury sec- secretary soon to be treasury secretary larry summers who then becomes president of harvard and their association 
continues on through the years there. Um, and you have all sorts of, of things going on in the 90s that have been underexplored. And I think one of the most underexplored aspects of Epstein are the financial crimes. And if you talk, you know, and talking about the death count um, around this case, the only innocent person to die uh, in recent years was in connection with uh, the effort to prosecute Epstein in, in in financial crimes as it relates to Deutsche Bank. And that would be the uh, hit on uh, Esther Salas's family, Esther Salas being the judge due to oversee that case. Right. Um, oh, yeah, and, you know, yeah. this this murder takes place shortly before then, uh, you know, and that didn't happen. That, that type of uh, act didn't take place necessarily targeting innocent people when it came to the sex trafficking situation right yeah. just uh people like brunel and, and epstein ended up uh quote unquote killing themselves in prison mm-hmm. so um you know i think there are a lot of unanswered questions but i guess what i would say that people get wrong about epstein they get it wrong because the mainstream uh, narrative is wrong and i think intentionally uh simplistic and what that narrative often is is that uh, jeffrey epstein was an anomaly and that he uh now that he is gone uh, all the problems that he uh, uh he uh, all the illegal activities he was involved in and all of this awful stuff that was exposed with his second arrest right it's all gone now because he's gone and that is right. not the case and i've written a thousand pages basically uh, (laughs) uh, trying to prove in in great detail that that is not the case and i think it's very clear that epstein was not an anomaly and i think it's you know i mean if you think about it a lot of people that were very powerful knew what he was doing i mean you even have the wife of john mccain cindy mccain saying in early 2020 we all knew what he was up to and she was, you know, oh, why was nothing done? But, you know, this is the wife of a top senator, a former presidential candidate with no direct Epstein connection saying, you know, us at the top levels of the Senate, I guess, knew what he was doing and nothing was done. I mean, that's very telling, right? So um, nothing was done for a reason. You don't just, you know, uh, if, if you believe the narrative about Epstein that he was just charismatic and a good schmoozer, how do you schmooze? Uh, the entire FBI um, in the Department of Justice uh, for decades uh, and schmooze the most powerful people in the government. I mean, are they all just suckers or was this guy, um, you know, making people a lot of money and involved in illegal activities of all sorts with them? Beyond uh, overthrowing the entire machinery of the U.S. government, uh, (laughs) what does justice look like? Because... um, yeah, I mean, some some of the people, some of the only a handful of women got like settlements, mostly from like uh, Dershowitz even or the Epstein estate does owe certain victims money. Right. But that's not yeah, and it paid out to some of them, as yeah. I as I understand it. Yeah, um, I imagine there's a lot of money hidden there, too, that nobody knows about, because that's what he was really good at doing was hiding and finding money. Yeah, sure. You know, I guess his official estate, I doubt that's all the money Epstein handled. Mm-hmm. Um, right. At, I think right before his first arrest, he sent like millions of dollars back to Leslie Wexner. Maybe it was right after his first arrest. But I mean, mm-hmm. money gets moved around and he was moving money around like crazy through Deutsche Bank before his second arrest in 2019. And I guess that's part of what those uh, that court case would have looked into uh, the one that Esther Salas was overseeing. Um because there was a lot of um, you know, attention brought to top leadership at Deutsche Bank about suspect activity taking place with Epstein's accounts yeah. years before his second arrest and nothing was done it, for it, a reason. Again, how do you schmooze Deutsche Bank and JP well, Morgan? 
and I, Bear Stearns and all of these institutions and the FBI. And when, I mean, when, it's just when you say that, like, it, 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 it did seem to be an open secret. I, I actually went, um, long story short, I went fly fishing with what turned out to be like a, a pretty significant billionaire, like, um, under the radar kind of billionaire. And, uh, my friends and I were just like, uh, peppering him with questions about, all the other billionaires who he knew and Epstein and of course came up and we were talking about Leslie Wexner and he said, Oh yeah, you know, Wexner had a, a proclivity for uh young Korean boys and Jeffrey would get them for him. And we're just like, how does that happen? Right. How do you get young? Like <laughs> he, he said it so matter of factly as though it was just like a, a, like a common thing that just like, yeah, there's like a, you just happen to have a pimp for uh for a, 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 any sort of ethnicity that you want. Um, and I found that to be just unbelievable. I mean, like it, 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 it just seemed kind of like uh, how the system operates. Yeah, that's pretty disturbing. Well, I didn't really talk about so much about, you know, uh, Wexner's alleged uh, role in, in the sex trafficking off. I talked more about his connections to organized crime and other, you know, aspects of his relationship with Epstein. Um but when it when it comes to someone like like Jeffrey Epstein, I mean, he and Wexner basically repurposed the airline we talked about earlier, the CIA CIA linked airline Southern Air Transport to move cargo expressly for Wexner's companies. Mm -hmm. And so they moved it from its its longtime headquarters in Miami up to Columbus, Ohio, to right. service uh, Wexner's business needs. Right. And it was going from there to Asia, to Hong Kong specifically. And um it's very difficult to know what exactly they wanted to move, right? So you had people like Ohio's Inspector General and other prominent people um, in Ohio law enforcement at the time basically uh, imply or directly state that what they were doing was either linked to intelligence or organized crime or both. Mm -hmm. um, and so obviously something shady was going on and something was being moved with that particular airline. Because if you look at the history of that, they weren't just courting Southern Air Transport. They were attempting to court uh, other intelligence-linked airlines as well. But the the underlying commonality between all those different airlines is that they had either CIA uh, well they had CIA links of some type or had been involved in um, Iran-Contra type activities or smuggling uh, linked to BCCI or linked to the Iran-Contra scandal or narco trafficking or something like that. So, um, you know, why those airlines, why that secrecy and why did people in Ohio, you know, that were in law enforcement admit to local journalists this type of organized crime connection, but nothing was done as Wexner right. untouchable as the state's richest man. Um, that's what a lot of this implies. So once you have that type of money and power, and if you have, you know, a billion like the one that spoke to you speak no so nonchalantly about it it seems like they live in a very different world than, the, than most of us uh, uh, yeah. to say to say the very least so and so i think at those levels too you know like i mentioned earlier how is epstein an anomaly when that type of stuff is just sort of shrugged off by people mm -hmm. in in these uh, social milieus one of the difficulties i think we have in both exposing and and changing this apparent system that's in place is or I, I find it frustrating when people sort of cherry pick from the kind of work that you do to uh basically reaffirm their pre-existing worldview um you know I, I i think that it's always you're always happy to see someone from the other team uh associated with this kind of bad shit you know it it, it 
it's satisfying for you know conservatives to see uh, Democrats associated with Epstein. Also ignoring the fact that you know William Barr is deeply involved in in Epstein's uh, mm-hmm. world as well. And so it, it's. Do you ever get frustrated that people kind of cherry pick your work to? Oh yeah, satisfy absolutely. their own. Yeah, yeah, totally. If I if I talk about the Epstein Clinton connection, people get mad at me for not talking about Epstein Trump enough. If people if I'm talking about the Epstein Trump stuff, people get mad at me for not talking about the Clinton stuff enough. And it's like right. I talk about both of them. I I, I exhaustively cover them in the book. <laughs> you right. know, pretty much all the information about it that's out there is in the book, uh, mm-hmm. condensed and you know, for your analysis, you know, I'm not trying to hide anything from anyone, but the problem is, you know, I think this is again, uh, the fault of the media It was sort of weaponized that way to be like, Oh, I'm on this side of the political spectrum. So look at Epstein and Trump, or I'm on this side. I want to look at Epstein and Clinton and like, you know, and, and apologize or make apologies for, you know, the other guy and his relationship with Epstein. And I mean, you know, to use the right as an example, you know, it was oh, a lot of apologia for Epstein Trump and, oh, they separated at this time and there's nothing to see there and blah, blah, blah. But look at Epstein Clinton. And then, you know, you get the same sort of stuff from from the left as well in mm-hmm. sort of trying to minimize the Epstein Clinton connection and build up uh, the Epstein Trump one to, you know, using um, some allegations that aren't credible. I mean, there are a lot of allegations that are, but, you know, not all of them are in a lot of, you know, fantastical stuff has sort of been um, inserted into the Epstein story by by some people, I think on a few occasions. But yeah, I mean, it can be really frustrating because what people need to understand is that this type of issue we're dealing with, whether it's sex blackmail or you know, the broader web of corruption that that emerges out of the Epstein story that's much bigger than Epstein. This is something that covers both political parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a left versus right issue. It's uh, an organized crime versus the rest of us issue, you know? Yeah, and- no, it, it, it's tough. And then, you know, I, I, I feel conflicted um, that certain, uh, it seems like right-wing media is more amenable to these kinds of conversations right now. I saw, I was trying to find like a book review of yours and I hadn't seen anything, but then I stumbled upon um, a rumble video with you and Glenn Beck. And, you know, it, it's, people get a lot of gu- uh, shit for going on Tucker, for instance, too. Um, yeah. I, I know a lot less about Glenn Beck than I do Tucker now. And, uh, you know, it would be weird. Well, I've never been invited on Tucker and I have mixed feelings about that. And I have mixed feelings about Alex Jones as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. The main reason I really went on, on, on Glenn Beck's show was because my grandma listens to him. <laughs> every day. Um, and, you know, I kind of yeah. wanted someone in, in my family to finally be like proud of my work, I guess, <laughs> or at least be exposed to it yeah. in the context where they'd actually listen to it instead of me right. just like, rambling over the phone or something you know <laughs> um, this is what i dedicated so, the last four years of my life to grandma like right this is, <laughs> yeah. yeah but i mean i mean it was it was kind of like that right so um uh you know some of these people like you know tucker has a, a history i'm not really comfortable with especially when it comes to like some stuff going on in the 1980s and his dad was involved with you know the voice of America, and so, yeah, basically yeah. u.s state propaganda and stuff i mean i you know i don't you know, I have trust issues with the with you know those types of types of people, and I'm sure Glenn Black Beck isn't isn't necessarily clean either. Um, but I mean, it's it's tricky because again, like you know, a lot of people, you there's a lot of public interest in the story, mm-hmm. and 
as someone who has and has looked at my book, uh, you're probably aware that I exhaustively cite things and I made a really airtight case for what I argue in the book, Mm -hmm. uh, which is part of why it ended up being a thousand pages because I went to great lengths (laughs) to do it. So, so a lot of public interest in the story, I think, but there's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of interest in having me on to talk about it. Or having people um, with platforms bigger than mine look at the book, and I certainly think there's a concerted effort to to not touch it. I mean, that I think that that's uh, after working in media, even the ways that you manufacture consent subconsciously um, is it, it it it's disappointing, really. Like I, I'm disappointed in myself sometimes. Where I'm like, oh, I definitely cannot mention that right now. You know, even though. There's Why a lot not? of self-censorship, I think, yeah. in in media, especially as you get to, you know, the more mainstream and what have you. Um, but that ultimately, you know, the longer that goes on, the more complicated it, be, it, it becomes. But I understand why people do it, because obviously you want to try and preserve um, your reputation and your job and all other sorts of stuff. But so that's the other thing I wanted um, to ask you, too, was um, uh, in the basically since trump uh my my worldview has changed and people uh call me a conspiracy theorist now um and i resent that because it's pejorative you know i think being called a, sure. it's it's not as like it's not a compliment um do people call you a conspiracy theorist yeah sure but you know um i've tried to make the case in the book that um real conspiracies have happened and people should know about them and mm-hmm. the idea that um, powerful people or powerful institutions like the CIA um, have no agency and it's just coincidences when their interests are benefited at the expense of the public's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it gets kind of hard over time to argue the, you know, over decades and decades of the same patterns of behavior and lack of accountability that it's just coincidence. Right. Uh, you know, over uh, <laughs> over decades and decades and decades. Um, and I think what's what's interesting is, you know, if you consider the use of conspiracy theorists as a pejorative, it was something that was intentionally, and this is documented, weaponized by the CIA in the aftermath of the JFK assassination mm-hmm. in relation to uh, reporting about the conflicts of interest of the Warren Commission that was investigating that assassination. Um, and, you know, it continues to be used so we should consider uh, it a slur it, and tell people like that they're not allowed to say it, right? We should uh, cancel them. For I don't like to tell theorists. people what to say and what not to say. Like that's not my job. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I I would like people to look past that label because the whole point of calling someone that is to like dismiss everything they say or write about and like to not engage with the information. And I think that's the whole point. It was created as this pejorative, like, and and to associate uh, people with pejorative and it's also a dismissal at the same time. So it's like, don't engage with this person's work. They're crazy. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, that's basically where it's come out of. But I think it's it's due time that people engage with all sorts of work, whether, you know, they think they're not going to like it or not and do their own research based on, you know, what this person has to say um, or, you know, check my references in the book or someone else's book or whatever. And, you know, take a little bit of responsibility for your information, because if you're watching like the evening news or something like that in the U.S., ABC News, CBS, all that sort of stuff, if you listen carefully to what they're saying you know they'll basically regurgitate 
you know, the government's narrative about something, but they don't question it. There's no pushback anymore. And there hasn't been for some time. You're basically getting fed, uh, spoon fed a particular narrative. And oftentimes, you know, governments are less than honest. So especially when it comes to national security situations and intelligence situations. So um, why is there no pushback from these media outlets? Um, and why do they smear people who do uh, investigate such conflicts of interest more often than not as conspiracy theorists? I think that term was really reweaponized in a dangerous way um, in the Trump era because it sort of uh, went hand in hand with this effort to censor uh, the Internet mm-hmm. a lot more than than previously as well. And, you know, any convenient and inconvenient information at this point can be uh, treated as conspiracy theory and, you know, thus worthy of of deletion. And now there's claims from DHS that conspiracy theories are a gateway to terrorist violence and <laughs> potentially in the future, they'll argue. Yeah. Um, and it's really not that far far away at this point you know they could easily argue that people that spout conspiracy theories are inciting violence or inciting terrorism right um you know it's a very slippery slope once you start to walk down it and so um these types of efforts to control speech i think should speak volumes to people because if they're so afraid of people looking at this information and thinking for themselves um you know maybe there's something to it you know maybe mm-hmm. it's not all just uh, you know, crazy people and you can only trust the government because they're the only authoritative source. I mean, in history, you know, in other places outside of the U.S., that has happened and it hasn't gone well <laughs> uh, for people or human rights or freedom of speech and all sorts of other issues. And I think people would um, do well to recognize the signs of uh, of what is happening in the United States right now. Do you worry for your safety? You know, we, we, we like no. to joke that um, the highest honor a journalist can get is not the Pulitzer, but a bullet in the brain from the CIA. Yeah. I mean, people say that, but I think at this point, you know, you you look at other people that cover the network. I sort of talk about in the book, like Gary Webb, Danny Casolaro, people like that. They did meet unpleasant ends. That's true. But I think in today's era, uh, they just call you a conspiracy theorist and they smear you or they censor you. And that's that it's a lot cheaper and easier for them than, you know, having to plan out some sort of, uh, end game for me Mm -hmm. or other people like me plus Mm -hmm. i mean you know if the whole point is to ignore my book or like not have people read it um you know and i get a bullet in the brain i i think it'll make your yeah you'll be number one bestseller if that's the case (laughs) look at what happened with the Kyrie shit uh with the the hebrews to negroes book and and i haven't i i literally saw that was a story like today i have yeah. no idea what's uh, going on there so well it, it it's it's i really want to watch it now i mean like even as a jew i'm super fascinated by it and i want to watch it uh it's an 800 page uh like fantasy book basically but i i, I he, by giving it i i think by reacting to to Kyrie. The media just gave that dude a million dollars and brought so much more attention to it. It's like the media doesn't understand their own power and what they do sometimes. Um, well, sometimes, yeah, they they target a person and and try and ruin them. But at the same time, it can bring the opposite kind of attention too, right? There, there's, there's Especially when trust in mainstream now. media is so low and there's a lot of people that like to push back against quote unquote cancel culture and all of that. Yeah. So, you know, you can make point, a career they, out of getting canceled now. It's actually it, it can it can help. Your, people have same, done it. Yeah. 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 The same way like Nick Bryant talks about how being compromised will help your career. 
so does being canceled i think it's kind of a similar playbook yeah it depends on your brand i think uh that you're trying to build but yeah i mean some people have made made it their career to be canceled (laughs) or it's given them a bigger platform Yeah. yeah So I want to end on a more positive note because uh, I, you know, I, I don't like to bum people. I like to leave a good aftertaste. Considering <laughs> all that you know, how dark, I mean, you're exploring some of the darkest corners of the world here, I think. Uh, how do you keep your head above water? I mean, do you consider yourself an optimist? I mean, what, what, how, what do you do? Yeah, so I think um, a lot of this history is necessary to document to understand where we are and what we're facing and that we can't really resolve anything until we recognize uh, the nature of the problem, right, in terms of like government corruption and and related issues to that. Um, So I think ultimately my optimism would come from people's willingness to do something about it. And increasingly that seems to be like, you know, all right, so organized crime is basically running the government. You don't want to go toe to toe with organized crime necessarily, but you can decline to use their uh, system and you can exit and build, create a parallel system or get local and uh, create a resilient community that isn't being, you know, completely looted, (laughs) um, you know, by these, by these networks and stuff. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people increasingly doing that, Mm -hmm. um, because basically, you know, what we've uh, done over the past several decades, we've outsourced, um, everything we need to survive to, you know, increasingly few corporations and those corporations more often than not are very predatory, um, or have conflicts of interest with other groups and all other sorts of stuff. And they're not interested in um, having, letting us lead the best quality of life, right? They're more interested in, you know, people boil it down to profits and other stuff, but there seem to be other agendas afoot as well, um, you know, that are ultimately about control um, and, and things like that. And the best way to be prepared is to not have to depend on those systems for your survival, right? Um, so how, how, how do you do that? You know, I, I used to have fantasies of dropping out, but where on earth can you go? I mean, that isn't. Well, I, I don't think this. it's about necessarily escaping. I think it's as simple as, you know, having a vegetable garden in your yard and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know, doing whatever you can to be uh, resilient. It doesn't look the same way for everybody, but there's a lot of economic stuff going on right now. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, energy and supply chain shortages and all sorts of other issues. Um, and, you know, historically, you know, people it, it, before like global globalization and all of this, a lot of what was produced was produced in the area for the community. Right. And we've sort of bought into the system where it's very uh, different than that. And so now that system is breaking apart. It really needs to go back in a sense to the old way so that, you know, uh, people don't run into major, major issues uh, when it comes to being able to feed their family and heat their house. Well, not necessarily in Florida, heat your house or be people able to cannot air survive without air conditioning summer. here. They yeah. cannot do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you know, it's like I said, it's different for everyone. So I think it's really about um, trying to, you know, if you're worried about, the top levels of government, which is basically what I, I write about in, in the book, you know, uh, local government's very different. And it's much easier to affect local change than national change. Um, and I think, you know, overall in the U.S., there's a lot of like-minded people that don't like where things are headed or they want to get uh, prepared and be able to take care of themselves and their families and, you know, their community and all of that. And the question is, you know, how quickly 
uh, do people come together? I think when push comes to shove, I think in the U.S., um, you know, most Americans are willing to do that. Um, but, you know, the sooner you can do it, the better off you'll be. Well, Whitney, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I do hope you come back to Florida. It'd be a pleasure to have you. If you are back, let me know. Uh, and uh, again, thank you for your work and your time. Thank you. Uh, Is there anything else you'd on. like to plug? Not that I mean, not. But well, my website for people that are interested is called unlimitedhangout.com. And so, like we've talked about, I have two books out. Um, you can buy them from the publisher Trinday T R I N E Day dot com. Um, as a bundle, so you can get both books for a reduced cost. Uh, there's an audiobook currently in the works, but there is also an ebook version available, including a Kindle format that you can get from Amazon and other booksellers. Cool, you heard that. Buy it, everybody. And uh, bye, Whitney. It's talking to you. <laughs> bye, thank you. I've been a bad, bad.